0: of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our brother James says, we all stumble in many ways. We all stumble in many ways. Now, this is not only a cause for humility, which it certainly is, a basis for us to be humble one with another, and, of course, humble before God. But it's also an opportunity for repentance. If we stumble, if we are in error, if we sin and God enlightens our eyes or makes us know that we're sinning and gives us the opportunity to repent, to stop doing what, what we shouldn't do and start doing what we should, and in the middle of that, be rearranged in the mind. Right? be trans, Have our minds transformed by the Spirit that we should understand uh, the errors that we have and, and repent of them that we should do right before God and serve Him faithfully. Since the inception of this church, the leadership as it comes to the Lord's Supper behind me, which we'll enjoy a little later on. The leadership has served not wine, but grape juice from the very beginning. And in that, they have followed what are the mores, the the ethical or moral feelings, and what's commonplace among American fundamentalism, not from the Bible. That's the, the reason that we've had grape juice in our cups the whole time we've had a cup here to drink, is because we follow the mores of american culture not the scripture it's that simple and i think that there are, we can explain some of the issues in the past and why why those kind of moral feelings or ethical feelings around alcohol have been have been difficult and so on in the church and what problems with drunkenness there have been and all that no question about that but none of it gives the church the right to change what god has given us any more than it gives us the right to have hamburgers and Coke and say, this is our common meal. See, it's the Lord's Supper. It's not. Uh, God's given us bread and a cup, and that cup is filled with the fruit of the vine, and the fruit of the vine is liturgical prayer language for a Jew for wine. So we know very well there's wine in the, in the Eucharistic cup, and so we come this morning, and I had mentioned last week, and as a matter of repentance to come to the table with wine instead of grape juice. Just like maybe a handful of years ago, we had changed from crackers to bread. That's another level of repentance, trying to do what God says to do and not just fall in line with what we've done in the past or, with again, what the mores of, of the culture are or what we think that direction. So this is, uh, today is a Lord's Day of Repentance, but not so much for you as a parishioner, as a, as a member of the Church of Christ, but it's a day of repentance for the leadership of the church because we're the ones who have served the cup with the wrong stuff in it all these years and it's it's red and it it comes from the vine and it's kind of like wine just not quite wine and so it's served and that's been fine it's I don't think there's an issue I don't think you need to think that oh all these years I've been sitting here eating bread and and drinking grape juice has been an affront against God I think the affront really comes from the leadership offering that serving what they ought not serve uh, to the congregation. But it gives us a chance, I think, as the leadership to bring in line our practice in the church with what the scripture says to do, and that's a glorious thing. It's a glorious thing when God gives the heart to repent, to say, let's do it right. Let's do what God says to do. And that often comes with difficulties. Repentance often generates difficulties in our lives that we need to deal with. And it can, this kind of repentance, as far as the leadership offering a cup with wine in it, uh, might generate some issues as well. We want to know about that and help work through them. Uh, that's partially, uh, we and, and I just might mention, one of the things that I think as a session that kind of threw us on this one is we've been talking about this for a long time. We've been talking about changing what's in the cup for a long time. And we've been kind of talking externally, you know, in camp and, and we've education hour and other discussions about about that as well. So uh, what may seem like it's crashing in, like we just announced it a, a month ago, and here we are switching to wine quickly. Uh, at least in our view, it's, it's something we've been working on a long time, but it might not be something we've communicated to the whole body uh, quite as readily as we've been working on or thinking about it as well. So there may be a, a bit of a jarring reality there for you as the parishioners, as a members coming to sit and receive the ministry of the Word of God, right, the reading of the Word, the preaching of the Word, and the administration of the sacraments certainly what the church has to offer. That is what the church serves. So as, as you receive this, um, rejoice. Uh, and if it's, if it's a struggle, you can refrain and, and we can certainly talk about it. So I want to offer that as, a, as a, something to help you to receive what we're, what we're doing and what we're changing. As I said, the supper gives us all the way across the board, not just in the elements themselves, bread, wine, But all across the board, the Lord's Supper gives us many opportunities to repent. Because it lifts up before us the Lord Jesus Christ and his death on our behalf because of our sin. And as we come face to face with that cross, as we come face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for us on that cross, we come face to face with our own sin. We come face to face with our own rebellion. We come face to face with our own weakness. And it gives us always an opportunity to stop, to be transformed in our minds by the Holy Spirit, by the word of God, the ministry of God, and then to issue new obedience, to come with fresh obedience to our God. So the Lord's Supper gives us plenty of opportunities. And it's not just that way now. It's been that way all the way back. When we examine 1 Corinthians and what's going on in the worship service at Corinth, I think we might just be aghast. At the way the church in the first century, having apostolic leadership and preaching and teaching, could get off the track so fast, could have so many problems so fast. But the church is like that. Christians were like that. We like to sit here and think we're not. We like to sit here and think, yeah, we got it pretty well together. We're reformed folks. We got our theology down, and uh, we got this whole liturgy thing down, which of course we don't have either of them. Um, but we think that. We kind of think we're, we're above the problems and fray of sin in the church. But like Paul says in this very passage, take heed lest you fall. Don't get haughty. Don't be full of pride because there are a few things God's given us. We should seek new obedience and seek to repent where we need to. And the Lord's Supper gives us a definite opportunity for that. Communion, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, The central, indeed a centerpiece, a focus of New Testament worship. We'll often hear the two words word and sacrament put together as a, a way of summarizing the church's ministry to preach the word of God, to herald the word of God, to teach it, and to administer the sacraments. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, communion being a centerpiece of Christian worship is like pagan worship. That's something we see in our passage here in First Corinthians 10, a connection that we might not make. Right? We might not think of the participation in the Lord's Supper as kind of like, or in a lot of ways, just like, pagan worship. Or in ancient pagan worship, that is to say, going to, going to feasts and having sacrifices and partaking of those sacrifices. And so and these things are kind of far from our mind. But they're right on the surface of the scripture. They're right there for us. So first, we will consider idolatry, this kind of general idolatry, and how the, maybe the eating and drinking and worship and other aspects are tied in with that. Secondly, the spirituality, koinonia, this word we'll explore, and idolatrous worship. It's not that we have fellowship or communion with the living God through worship, but through false worship, we can have koinonia or fellowship with demons, with darkness, with the spiritual forces ranged against God. His Christ. And finally, spiritual fellowship, the koinonia we have in Christian worship in the Eucharist, specifically as we come to the bread and the cup, what God gives us there. So first, idolatry. The Old Testament gives plenty of examples of idolatry. And not just idolatry of the pagans, right? Those those out there who who don't know the true and living God, they worship false gods. There's certainly that out there. We have the, all the nations have their gods and everything else. Israel, God has called to be His own nation, His own people. So the true and living God has revealed Himself to one nation, Israel, in the Old Testament, and that's where we find the worst idolatry. Now, of course, the pagans, the unbelievers out there are going to have their idolatrous worship. But what about the people of God who've been called out of that? To whom God has shown who he is. He's revealed himself to Israel, and yet they still chase after other gods. Now, we can read these examples, and there are plenty, plenty, plenty of them as we read through the Old Testament. We can read those and scratch our heads and say, why are they so crazy? Why are they so hard-hearted, these Jews? Why are the children of Israel continually going through this process of, of sinning and rebellion and being chastised and, and repenting and coming back and then sinning and rebelling again and just keeping that process going? But, of course, we're just simply blind to our own sin and our own rebellion. And maybe it's easier to spot theirs because it's on page for us and, and, and made much of in the scriptures, but it's, it's difficult, Christian. To spot our own inconsistencies, to spot our own uh, idolatry—the ways in which our hearts seek after uh, pleasures and gifts that God gives through other means, and so on—and in particular, offer worship, offer our our lives, and pour ourselves out for something other than God. More on that as we go. But is this just an Old Testament thing? Is this like—is this a problem that Israel had? Like they were wily and goofy back then, and, and they had issues. Uh, but that's not really a New Testament issue, because we have the Spirit now. Right? This is the age of the Spirit. Right? The Spirit's been poured out. We've been baptized in the Spirit as the Church of Jesus Christ. Doesn't that mean something? Does it put us in maybe a different spot than ancient Israel was? And it does. But we need to make sure we draw the parallels where the Scripture draws the parallels, and draw the contrasts where the Scripture draws the contrasts. And not just make up our own contrasts and parallels. Now, I ask you as you read or have heard in your ears read 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and the warnings about idolatry, saying these things happened to them as examples for us on whom the ends of the age has come. Okay, so we're in this fullness of time. That gets us into the age of the Spirit and the reign of Christ. Does Paul make a disconnect between ancient Israel or a connection between ancient Israel? Is it a parallel reality? Of idolatry and God's response to it among his people? Or is it a different situation in the New Covenant? I would answer, if it's a different situation, it makes us more culpable in the New Covenant for idolatry than they were in the Old. And you read the first section of 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and say, man, God really took it out on them, though. God really took it out on Israel. When they sinned, and he gives a number of examples of their rebellion and God's response, their rebellion, provoking God by idolatry and God's response. The New Testament application here is of an Old Testament theme, that God's covenant people, if they are unfaithful to God, those people provoke God. The people of God provoke God to anger by their idolatry, by their unfaithfulness. Now, maybe I can give here, I think, an entirely inadequate but place to start, taxonomy of idolatry. Just kind of thinking through the different categories of what idolatry is and at least having a place to start so we can make some headway. And I think the first one might be called just abject idolatry, black coffee idolatry, which is to say, here is an idol. right? Here's a, here's a statue of Zeus. Here's a statue of Jupiter. You name it, and you go and you offer to it, you bring offerings to it, you bow down before it right? you 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 do the worship thing, right? You go and involve yourself directly in the worship of false gods. That we call maybe abject idolatry. And for the most part, I think that's something we don't see very much. In the ancient world, say in, in the time of the apostles, remember Paul walking down the street at Athens. He wasn't impressed with how many pretty churches there were. Wow, what a lot of churches. Now, I've been to, say, Linden, Washington. There are quite a few churches in Linden, Washington. To the point where you're walking down the road, and you're looking around, man, there's six or eight pretty churches just right here walking down these few blocks of downtown. You realize that was not the case in the ancient world. There were pretty little churches on the corners that pretty little Christians made in a pretty little Christian culture. Because none of that was there. Right? It was a pagan culture, filled with idols and worship. Remember Paul walking in Athens, marveling, looking around, being astounded at how many idols the Athenians would worship. And he comes and proclaims to them the true and the living God. Now, so that's this temptation. It's obviously a temptation for the ancient church. And I think for us as well, though it's harder maybe for us to get a hold of. How do we know this was a temptation in the ancient church? Because Paul addresses it. First Corinthians 10. He, he says in verses 12, we get that 12 and 13, right? This is where he's talking about. This is the idolatry that he's warning the, the believers against. Verses 12 and 13 here of First Corinthians 10. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Okay, so these, these, these temptations that he's talking about toward idolatry are common to man and even to the Christians. We might say, oh, well, Christians shouldn't have an issue with idolatry. But we do. That's what's explained here. That's what, that's the background of what we're dealing with here. Okay, then God, He says, this is, this is common stuff, and He won't allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, prepare a way for you with temptation. This is a wonderful text as we struggle with temptation and sin. To memorize this, to keep it in our mind and look for that way God has given us out. But all to say here that idolatry is a temptation for Christians. Otherwise it wouldn't be so addressed as it is here in the text. So abject idolatry is one thing we call just bringing your offerings, bowing down to a false god. But what about what we might call, this is what we have more in the text here as far as the issue that the Corinthians are dealing with, participative idolatry. Participating in something that actually connects you into idolatrous worship. And as Paul says, koinonia or fellowship or communion or participation in the demonic world. Right, isn't that what's going on here in the text? It's not that the Christians generally are going into the pagan worship you know, like I say, abjectly. To the highest degree, they're just in there bowing down to the false god and making their offerings. They're not really doing that. They're going to get the food afterwards. right? They're going to pick up the meat, whether it's the meat they pick up and take home. And again, meat is kind of a special thing to get in the ancient world. It's not something they have every, every night for dinner. It's not, what's for dinner, mom? Beef! It's not like that in the ancient world. So when you get meat, it's kind of special. And oftentimes, meat's coming through. It's always coming through. Some kind of spiritual reality. There's no question about that. There are prayers and blessings at every point of handling of meat, um, from before the slaughter right on down to consumption. So it's, it's a connected spiritual world. More on that as we, as we go. But we have this abject bowing down to the idol. But we also have, Paul says, a situation where even if you're sitting out there at the fellowship meal afterwards, you kind of show up and there's, you know, there's some food to be had and you, you pay or whatever and you go in and sit and eat that that participation not with not with god but with demons there's a way to eat at the table of demons as a christian not even necessarily meaning to maybe not even being aware that that's going on although paul says judge for yourselves what i say reasonable people so i think i think there's something he's appealing to in the ancient mind understanding this participation, the spiritual participation that we are blind to. We don't see at all. And if we see it, we see it in strange ways. We see it in strange ways. We see it in terms of like cards or dancing or, or things like that. We have these little externals that we pick and say, these are sinful things and these are kind of idolatrous. And I think we confuse things all around the board. But Paul's talking here about participative idolatry. So we have abject idolatry. Participative, just being involved in something, in particular eating and drinking, Paul has, that, uh, that ties us into demonic fellowship. So, my question here is how far does this go? And what's included in participative idolatry? Is it just eating and drinking? Is it just tied to pagan temples and, and the, the sacrifices and meat that come through it? Or, 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 or is that a category that includes other things as well in which we participate, have koinonia, with demons and demonic forces. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how the category goes. But we can at least offer a third one. This would be a little closer maybe to maybe to how we think about idolatry nowadays. How about the organizing principle idolatry? That is to say Christian as you look at the world and you understand the world and your place in it what is the organizing principle? What organizes and, 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 and brings together in a in a reasonable or rational way, all of the things you're thinking and understanding as a human being? What is the organizing principle or the focus and structure of life? What is the framework for thinking and living? Who are you and what is this world and how do we know it? And there are all kinds of competing ideas on what that is, on answering those questions. And I think as we one of our ways of idolatry is is bringing in those frameworks of thought, bringing in those organizing principles, maybe not entirely, Uh, You wouldn't say to yourself, I'm a Marxist Christian, I I, I follow Marxism, that's that's the the framework of thought that I, we don't usually do that, right? That's not, that'd be a little bit more on the abject idolatry side of things. But if we go over here, we, we still absorb and receive the Marxist ideas and thoughts, which we and we, we, we do that uncritically. We do that and just bring them into the way we live and think. I think that's an aspect of idolatry right there. Letting God not rule our minds, but having somebody else rule our minds and tell us how things are organized and who we are and what we're doing. One thing that Paul gives us here so clearly in this text is the either or. You're either going to eat at the Lord's table and drink at the Lord's cup or you're going to eat at the table of demons and drink the cup of demons. Which is it? Christian, which is it? And how do you commit yourself to that? To Christ exclusively. That you belong to Christ, you're his, and he's yours. And all these other idols, all these other objects of false worship or control of our minds and lives, we reject. And say, I belong to Christ. He's mine. He's mine. And I'm his. The Lord's Supper brings that before us every time we come to it. Maybe we're not thinking that. Maybe we're not thinking this. Hey, this is cup of the Lord and the table of the Lord we're coming to. And it means we cannot share, therefore, in the cup and the table of demons. So, as far as idolatry goes, these outward organizing, I'm sorry, the organizing principle aspect of idolatry is kind of internal. It's the way we think. It's the way we, uh, it's the way we think and perceive and feel our way around the world and understand what's going on. But it does give rise yet to outward and, uh, outward decisions, outward actions and so on. We can see that idolatry of the heart work its way out. That's different from what I call the abject idolatry where you can see it right away because here's the guy on the floor on his knees bowing down to the idol. Okay, there it is. There's the idolatry. Right? Even in the participative idolatry, you can say, yeah, if, and, and it's, notice Paul first talks about the idolatry before God, provoking him. And then he turns around and talks about what that idolatry does among the people, right? And what, what, what it is to eat that, that meat, sacrificed to idols in the midst of the consciences of other people. So it's 1st Godward oriented, and then secondly, toward the people around us. This is how Paul is handling this in this section. So from the abject idolatry that's very obvious, there it is going on, there's the false worship, to this participative idolatry that's kind of harder to see and even kind of get your mind around, all the way to idols of the heart that we cannot see. They're in our minds and in our hearts. though They all give rise to external decisions and orientations and so on in life. And we can spot them. May God give us, each of us, the grace to see and repent of our own idolatry, the things in our own hearts. That make us stray from God, whether it's the abject sort, the sort, or even the organizing principle sort of idolatry. What idols, then, are present in your life? What idols are present in the life of your family, of my family? What idols are are part of and and operate here, even in our own church and worship? These are questions we need to look at and think about and pray that God would give us insight into Because he'll give us the insight, and he'll give us the repentance. May we seek him for it. As for spirituality, that's a word that maybe is confusing for us, or difficult maybe to ascertain the meaning of it. What I'm meaning by it here, in this point, so we've talked about idolatry. I want to talk about the spirituality, that is the spiritual connectedness of creation as God has made it. We often think of spirituality as a category. It's non-physical, or uh, it's it's, it's some other category that doesn't have to do with the physical world or energy, but something else, and that's kind of a category we have in life, whereas I think the whole thing is rightly understood as spiritual. God has made us in his own image, uh, body and soul. And all of it, we're spiritual all the way down, and I think sometimes we make distinctions there where we ought not. But let's move forward and think of the spirituality of this passage in 1 Corinthians 10. And think of it in terms of participation. Okay, now we talk about participation, and that's the word koinonia. That's the the kind of, whatever, the two-bit Greek word for you. And you'll find it in in names of churches and things like that. Koinonia fellowship and things like that. You'll you'll find it there. And you'll be "I, I remember that word. It means, and then you won't remember what it means. But it means fellowship. It means participation. It means an intimate fellowship. Right, a, a communion right? so the kind of words that are used to translate it you'll see are, are, are different the ESV gives participation which I think is a wonderful word because it makes us think about what that means <laughs> what is it to participate in the blood of Christ in communion now it's one thing to, to remember it Jesus said do this in remembrance of me that, that's, that's kind of easy That's easy to understand. We can remember the work of Christ on the cross. We can think about it and remember his suffering, remember his, his love that he gave himself up for us. And we can remember and think about it. But that's not the same as participation in it. But a participation in it means you have a sharing in it. There's part of it that's yours. And that's something going on in the Lord's Supper with the body and the blood of Christ. But not just in the Lord's Supper. We'll get there. Look at all the koinonia through the passage, verses 14 through 22. Verses 14 through 22. I'll just read a few of them as they come. So we're fleeing from idolatry. And in verse 16, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation, a koinonia, in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one bread, we who are many are one body. Because we all partake. Same, same, different verb, but same idea here. We're all participants in the one bread. And then consider Israel after the flesh, those who eat the sacrifices. Now that might be the priests, because the priests are going to live on the sacrifices that come into the temple, and they're going to eat the meat of the sacrifice and be partakers with the altar, that is with the worship of God and God himself. But also those, as we read from Deuteronomy 14 last week, where you're going to take your money up to Jerusalem, exchange it for everything you want, and then you're going to rejoice with your family. You're going to rejoice and eat from the altar that way. They're participants of the altar. So the worship of Israel in the Old Covenant had participation with Yahweh, their God, even though they never used the word koinonia for it, which is an interesting point. I'll make some other time. But we have all of these participations, all the way down to the end here. It says you cannot drink of the cup uh, he says, I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Uh, we can't participate with both of them. This is, this is a binary reality. You either participate with God, or you're participating with spiritual forces of darkness. In any event, there's lots of participation going on. Right? There's lots of sharing in this spiritual reality. And I kind of think maybe our mindset generally is, you're a spiritual being and you relate to God individually. You have a spiritual life, and God's opened your eyes to the fact that He exists and that He sent His Son to redeem sinners, and we relate to God kind of individually. And it's kind of weirder maybe, but we relate to each other somehow as well. And we have this connection in the body where God says, You're one body, you're you're joined together in Christ Jesus under one head. And we say, Okay, not sure exactly what that means, but that's at least feasible. That's within the wheelhouse of understanding. But what's not within the wheelhouse of understanding for us, I don't think, and certainly not for me, is the broader spiritual connections that he says exist. As the pagans offer their sacrifices and their worship to their gods, what they're really doing is worshiping demons. And the demons don't care which god you worship, as long as you don't worship the true and living God. Anything is fine. Any idol is fine. Why? Because any idol will do the trick. Every idol will do the trick of distracting you and your worship and your life from the true and living God. And the demons don't care which one. They're not choosy. Maybe they are. Maybe they have contests and things. I don't know. I couldn't tell you I know. Uh, It seems like they probably would. But they don't care as long as you're not worshiping the true and the living God. So koinonia, this fellowship, this participation we have, isn't just with God in the positive, redemptive sense. There's koinonia that people have, there's participation, there's a communion that people have with the demonic through idolatrous worship. Now, we would tend to think, oh, well, they're just silly, and they're just deluding themselves, and there aren't any gods anyway, and they're just deceived. They're just kind of foolish. But Paul says, well, all all those things are true. (laughs) But worse than all of that, they're becoming in league, they're participating with the dark forces. Opposed to Christ, opposed to God and his Messiah. And Christians are tempted by this. This is the temptation. I'm talking to a neighbor who, I guess, had the thought in her mind that the only spiritual people in the world were Christians, and everyone else was kind of non-spiritual. They're all lost in the lack of spirituality, but there's, there's no lack of spirituality. There's no lack of spirituality among men, among unbelievers, among pagans, among pagan cultures. That's why Paul walks around in Athens marveling at their spirituality. How spiritual they are. How religious. Isn't that great? Isn't it great the Athenians were just so religious in all their ways? Paul says, no. You need to know the true and living God. I come to proclaim Him to you. We get duped by God talk get duped by spirituality because we've so long, I think, been in a culture where spirituality is just a joke. Right? Show me if I can measure it, if I can taste it, I can touch it. That's real stuff. Your spiritual mumbo jumbo, get it out of here. Well, that comes and goes. We'll find the culture changes and then suddenly spirituality is now good. Right? This dimension of life that we can't see and, and that's certainly out there and powerful. People become acquainted with it. And, oh, there is real power there. There is real power, Christians in demonic forces there is real power in the dark side if it weren't so why would Jesus Christ have to come and give himself up to death to redeem us out of it without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sins it comes down to that our Lord Jesus Christ had to break us out of that bondage by his own death and resurrection this is powerful stuff it's even more powerful if we make believe like it doesn't exist Trying to think of the name of the movie, Usual Suspects, with Kaiser Sose, who says the greatest trick the uh, devil ever played was convincing the world he didn't exist. If the devil's just a joke, if all his power and his, uh, his administration, his spiritual administration, is just a joke, it's not real, then we don't pay attention to it. We get lost in other things and forget where our actual battle is, forget where the war is. So, Koinonia with darkness is a real situation that really <laughs> happens to real Christians. It certainly happens in the world, apart from the work of the church. Do you see that spiritual connectivity in the world? It's almost like we're fighting powers that we can't see. It's almost like there's a war raging around us that we're oblivious to. We kind of know our own flesh, and we, we fight against that, not even being aware of the spiritual forces in which we conduct this Reality in which we live that is indeed a warfare. So, how easy is it to trick someone when you tell them that the enemy is not even there? When they don't believe in, in, in wicked spiritual forces that actually do combat your soul, your family, this church, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, the work and dominion of Jesus Christ altogether? Oppose tooth and claw to Jesus Christ. They are indeed our enemies. Paul says, Finally, be strong. This is from Ephesians 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord, in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Christians, we're at war. It's a spiritual war. And it's a spiritual war beyond our perceptions. We don't even see what's going on. We read the scripture to kind of get a clue what's going on. But that's okay. Because we're not the generals. We're not the ones leading this. The Lord Jesus Christ is the great general of the army of God. And he is leading it to victory. We follow him to victory. We don't follow our own designs, our own tricks, our own ways. And the grape juice in the cup is one of those. The grape juice in the cup of the Lord's Supper is a way of being wiser than God, of being smarter than God, of being more caring for those who struggle than God is. Now, I think there's a place for that care, and there's a place for that, but for the church simply to take what God has given and exchange something else is not that. It's not wise and it's not good. And it's trying to do spiritual warfare on our own terms. I know what makes people struggle with alcohol. Let's give them grape juice. But you know what? God knows that too. God knows what you struggle with. If you struggle with alcohol, God knows it. He's known it from all eternity. He's known it of himself from all eternity. He said, put crew the vine in that cup. It's a blessing. The cup of blessing for you. So we need to learn to receive that. We need to learn to receive and live what God has given us and how he's told us to live with it. And it indeed is a spiritual battle raging around us. May we trust our God through Christ Jesus to lead us through and not be tricked. So I'm not... And this maybe your mind's going here, because I kind of wrap the second point up. We're not to return to all the superstitions of bygone eras. In this modern era, we, we, we think everything works on mathematics and functions, and, and, and the spiritual realities are just, if they're to be considered at all, they're not to be considered by the rational. they're going to be considered by something else and under different circumstances. Uh, and that's fine. I think we, that's what's come down to us, right? as far as the culture of the intellectual culture, that's, the spiritual culture that's come down to us. I don't want to return to the eras before that, where our brothers and sisters in Christ saw demons behind every tree. Every shadow had a demon in it, right? This world is suffused, and it is, with spiritual forces in reality. There's no question about that. We're blind to it. But we don't want to live in fear of that. We live in a bewitched world. It's full of spiritual forces. It doesn't happen just because it happens. It doesn't run on functions. God makes it run. He holds it together. It's spiritual from the word go. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. We don't live in fear, then, of these dark spiritual forces. We recognize them as enemies, but we recognize them as defeated enemies by Jesus Christ, who is leading us step by step in his victory. Now, that's a hard victory to win for us, the mop-up situation in which we find ourselves. Jesus Christ has given himself up to death on the cross, publicly displaying all of his enemies as conquered as he comes back from the dead. Jesus has done it. And now he gives us his spirit and he gives us the means, even of the Lord's Supper, as we come through the word of God, to overcome in our own hearts, in our own lives, in our families, in the church and in the world as well. So I don't want to go back to the ages of superstition and fear, but I want to remove the superstition of the modern world from our eyes that this isn't a spiritual place when it is top to bottom. It is top to bottom. And God affects koinonia with us as we worship him, abjectly, participatively, and organizing our, our life's principles around us. So quickly, here, communion. We're at war with a mostly unseen enemy. We need to be supplied. Okay, if we're at war, we need supplies. Where's the baggage train? Where's the, where's the war munitions coming in for us to conduct this war? We need to be well-supplied. And for that, God gives us koinonia with himself through the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus the Christ. What is Christian koinonia with in our text? Look at verse 16. Again, this is to reasonable people. You should know this, folks. We find that our reasonability and our our prudence isn't quite maybe what it should be. And maybe neither was the Corinthians as far as that goes. But verse 16 tells us, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation, a koinonia, in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation, a communion, the koinonia, of the body of Christ? Our participation, then, as we come to the table and we take that bread and eat it together, so we take that cup and we drink it together, our participation is in the death of Jesus Christ. That's what we're participating in. We have a share in that death. And as we eat and drink, we participate in that death. We take our share. Now maybe we think, well, Jesus died for me way back then. But what does that have to do with me? What's the connection? Well, communion shows you the connection. It shows you into your mouth and in your stomach and into your digestion that we must take Christ and he must be ours. We must be connected to him. We must participate in his death. If we don't participate in his death, it's of no benefit to us. And communion is a means of participation in the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We participate with him and through him, Christian, with the uncreated divinity. Uncreated God, eternal and absolute God. We have fellowship with, we have communion with, we have koinonia with. Through the flesh and blood of Jesus. God incarnate. You see the genius of the plan? The God himself invaded humanity, making himself a human. Not by mixing up natures and saying, oh, here's a God-man mix. Uh, here's this confusion of God-man. That's not how it's gone. The church has been very clear as it's, as it's, um, it's related, as it's proclaimed it through the years, that we have two distinct natures. Divinity, humanity. In one person, forever. We call the hypostatic union. That's the very basis of our redemption. That God became man. And through his flesh and blood, he draws our flesh and blood into eternal fellowship with the triune majesty. That is your salvation. And it's here for us in a table. In a bite of bread. And in a sip of wine. We say, this is our communion, our participation in divinity. And God himself is through the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ, the God-man, our Savior. Now, the cup by which we have this participation in divinity and in the blood of Jesus Christ, the cup is called the cup of blessing. The cup of blessing. Now, one might be tempted for a second to rehearse some of the cups in the Passover meal, and say, well, there was this cup, and there was this cup, and the third one's the blessing. And, and maybe that's the case, and that's fine. There have been a lot of people who've done a lot of work on that. I'm just making it kind of side note. But a lot of the things we know about, say, first century Passover keeping comes from two centuries later when Jews were writing about it. So, And, of course, two centuries later, what was missing? Right, the temple. <laughs> the very centerpiece of, of Jewish worship is now gone, And so they have to reinterpret and rework what they're doing in light of that. So they can have a sacrifice-less Seder. A Seder that doesn't have a sacrifice. But of course the entire point of the Passover was a sacrifice. right? So anyway, I hope you see what's going on there. That a lot of the sources we have that say, oh, here's what the ancient Seder looked like. Here's what the ancient Passover looked like, are from sources a couple hundred years later and kind of antagonistic. So anyway, let that be a case for you in understanding that maybe we don't really know what happened at the Passover meal other than what's written, right? Other than what's written in the scriptures for us. But let me put it to you this way. Instead of trying to trace the cups and say, hey, it's a third cup and a cup of blessing. Can you think of other cups in the Bible that God has? It's not very hard to think of a handful of cups. How about the cup of the fury of his wrath that he says to his enemies, you'll drink it all the way. Down. That's a cup, isn't it? That's a cup of the Lord. But it's not this cup. This is the cup of blessing. Now, Christian, you should know. You should know as clearly as you know anything that you deserve that cup of wrath. You deserve to drink it down to the dregs and all the nasty stuff that goes along with that. We can read the scriptures. That's your lot by nature. But God comes to us not with the cup of curse the cup of the fury of His wrath. But He comes to us with the cup of blessing. Our God, the Holy One of Israel, comes to us sinners, not with the cup of wrath, not with the cup of judgment, but with the cup of blessing. The cup of blessing that we bless. But as we enter into this, and this is a covenant meal, and this little miniature meal is a covenant meal, it's not just for blessing. There are realities of the covenant. We see this all through chapter 10 here, chapter 11. They're dealing with the Lord's Supper. Remember in chapter 11, Paul says, Hey, you're not doing this thing right. You're not respecting the body. You're not loving each other. And God's judging you for it. The judgment of God is on the church for how they're conducting themselves at the Lord's Supper. How they're conducting themselves in the Eucharist. So there's a double side to this covenant thing. And it's important for us to hear clearly. One commentator says, A koinonia in the body and blood of Christ may mean a sharing in the results of Christ's sacrificial death. But what the Corinthians had not realized through their arrogance and complacency was the fact that the cup also committed them to covenantal judgment when they sinned. When we come to the table, when we partake of the bread, when we partake of the cup, we're committing ourselves to the Lord, to eat from his table. To drink from his cup alone. Not any other God. Not any other idolatry. Not any other worship going other directions. Whether again it's that abject idolatry or kind of participative idolatry like we see here. Or even idols of the heart and so on. We belong to the Lord. And we shouldn't through arrogance or complacency or anything else. Forget it. It is the cup of blessing because Christ came to redeem his people. And those who have faith, those who rest in Christ Jesus, receive that redemption. They receive that grace. Even if we don't know it, we participate in the death of Christ as we come to the table of the Lord. But for those of hard heart, for those who come week by week and hear the gospel, for those of us who come week by week and hear the good news of Jesus Christ and all he's done, and yet our hearts are elsewhere. Our hearts are intertwined with something else, someone else. We are idolaters, and God will judge us for that. Christian, the Lord's Supper tells us we are exclusively God's. We belong to him and to him alone. This is the important part of the covenant koinonia. The fellowship we have is with God and with his people. We are God's people together. So we belong to God alone. So vertical reality but then the horizontal reality is we belong to each other God made us a body and as we think of the Lord Jesus Christ who is sinless and gave himself up to death on the tree for whom did he give himself up not himself Christian he gave himself up for others for you out of love he poured his blood out he broke his body submitted it to be broken for you for somebody else. And not just somebody else who's, ah, they're okay, you know, I kind of like that guy. But for somebody else who's a rebel and a sinner, the Lord Jesus Christ loved us and poured himself out, his blood out for us, and calls us to do the same, to be exclusively God's, but to give ourselves one to another. And we see that's the rest of the season. In fact, from chapters 8 all the way to chapter 11 in 1 Corinthians, we have the same thing going on. How to love one another in the body of Christ how to avoid idolatry such that we're not provoking God and that we love one another as we conduct ourselves in the body. So as we come to the Lord's table, not only are we reminded that we belong to God exclusively and that there are spiritual, covenantal curses built into this thing if we decide we're going to be idolaters, we're going to chase something else and worship something else rather than the true and living God. But we're also reminded that we're bone of each other's bone, flesh of each other's flesh. And it's not just that we're reminded. It's that we participate in it. The very doing of it in faith, we receive the blessings of the Eucharist, of the cup that we give thanks for and bless our God for. So we are committed to God alone, to each other. And then also, the Lord's Supper should remind us and impel us to bring others to this death. The world needs to die to itself in Jesus Christ, and be raised to newness of life. All the nations need that. All the counties need that. All the cities need it. All the families need it. Every individual needs it to die to self and be resurrected in newness of life in Jesus Christ. And that's what we have here in the church. That's what we celebrate is the work of Jesus Christ. Died for sinners and brought back from the dead. So we live in a spiritual world, a sticky one, a connective one, in ways that are kind of surprising to us, I think, and maybe more powerful, certainly more powerful than we think. Idolatry is part of the reality of this. Not only all the blind nations that don't know God, but even within the Church of Jesus Christ that does know God, idolatry is a problem. Idolatry is a sin we need to deal with, whether it's abject idolatry, formally bowing down to idols, participative as eating and drinking in contexts that unite us with spiritual forces of darkness or with God, but also organizing principle the idols of the mind, the idols of the heart, the way in which we see ourselves in the world we live in, different from the revelation of God in the scripture and through Jesus Christ. Spiritual warfare is real and it's raging. Spiritual warfare is real and it's raging all about you, all in you, all about this church. Let's not pretend that it's otherwise. Let's not delude ourselves into thinking that such is not the case. The one great weapon we have, Christian, is our koinonia with God. To fight against the world's koinonia with demons and darkness, we have that fellowship with God, that intimate fellowship, communion, participation in the divine through the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ, the God-man. Our one great weapon, then, is, is our fellowship with God through faith, in the blood of Jesus Christ. And together, as God's people, we receive that as a great blessing, the cup of blessing that we bless. Indeed, we bless it and receive it and set it apart and receive this blessing from God. And in faith, trust that he will lead us and guide us, help us see the things we can't see, help us understand the warfare going on around us that we're unaware of and our spot in it and our idolatries, our temptations and our actual idolatries that we should repent of them and enjoy fellowship with the triune God, through Jesus Christ's flesh and blood, that we should be his body. We should serve him. We should love one another and serve the world in which we find ourselves. All that is brought to you by Jesus Christ through the table. Participation in all of that, but specifically participation in his death, and that his Father on the third day raised him from the dead victorious. May we rest in him, rejoice in him, and feed upon him, in word and in sacrament. Amen.